the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Innovators Network. Welcome to the Heart of Innovation. 60 minutes that can save life and limb with new breakthrough ideas and innovation changing the healthcare landscape. Brought to you by patient advocacy group, thewaytomyheart.org. In partnership with Cardiovascular System Incorporated's patient advocacy campaign, Take a Stand Against Amputation. Here are your hosts for the Heart of Innovation, Emmy Award-winning journalist and founder of The Way to My Heart, Kim McNicholas, and interventional cardiologist and founder of the Save My Piggies Health Education Series, Dr. John Phillips. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Innovation. I'm John Phillips, interventional cardiologist out of Columbus, Ohio. My co-host is on location in Italy. Aren't you jealous? I am totally jealous. (laughs) Uh, But we're going to have a great show. Uh, Thanks for joining. Today, we're going to kind of focus on something a little bit different. You know, in the past episodes, we've discussed peripheral arterial disease. Basically, you have these blockages in your arteries that can cause limb loss and, and, um, you know, painful walk and when you're walking, etc. Today, we're going to talk about the physicians who treat this, this disease process, and I'm one of them, and how we kind of get our education once we're in practice. So how do we keep learning even though we've, you know, finished medical school, residency, fellowship, and go to, you know, do we go to conferences? Do we learn online? Do we read books, et cetera? And really where Kim is or why Kim's in Italy is because she attended a complex uh, conference uh, about patients that have a very specific type of, of peripheral arterial disease called critical limb ischemia, meaning their blood, the blockage going to their legs is so severe that it's causing tissue loss and they're at very high risk of uh, a minor amputation or a major amputation, i.e. losing their leg. So there are a handful of these conferences uh, throughout the world and Kim was able to be at one of them. Kim, how was it? It was incredible. And what was the coolest part about the whole experience was to be surrounded by so many of these doctors that are truly committed to saving life and limb, exhausting all efforts. And 90% of these doctors who treat peripheral artery disease, those blockages that are in the legs that are limb threatening, they don't learn the new advanced treatments for many reasons. Only 10% of these vascular doctors in the world, the 10% of interventional cardiologists, interventional radiologists, and vascular surgeons who all treat this disease are actually trained in these advanced tools and techniques. So many doctors rest on their laurels as to what they learned in medical school, and they end up for their continuing education, going to conferences that only reaffirm what they've already learned versus learning the new advanced tools and techniques. It's amazing to me, medicine moves at the speed of light, so much innovation happening. 
it's hard for every doctor to stay on the cutting edge. And that's why it's so important to have these types of conferences. And the highlight of these conferences are the live cases where you actually watch on a big screen a physician tackling some of the most complex blockages in arteries and sometimes succeeding, sometimes not, but so many learnings either way. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, touching on the point of going to conferences, it's tough for physicians to, to take time out of their practice, away from their families, and, and traveling. COVID was um, a blessing in the sense that a lot of these conferences went virtual. So now you can log in and, and participate that way. So I think that's that's a plus. But it is, it is as a physician who does go to a fair amount of conferences, and I've been to the one you were at, and I was on faculty at it, and, and um, it's a great conference. But you do have to commit yourself to trying to, to be better each day. Um, than the day you the, the day before, and and you can learn from your other uh, you know your other partners. There's a lot of stuff online where you can check out videos and learn new techniques. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of opportunity to learn. We just sometimes have to get out of our our own way and get past that inertia. Why is it just from peer to peer to peer? And because I also know it must frustrate you to see some of your colleagues that will not attend some of these advanced conferences why don't they attend what what is what's the word on the street why don't they want to go to some of these advanced training opportunities and just go to something that they would literally get the same education they got 10 years before in medical school well specifically with pad and 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 critical limb ischemia i mean treating folks that have critical limb ischemia have they have very complex blockages and opening up these blockages, it's not something you can really dabble in. So you really have to have to be committed. And honestly, when I went over to Italy to do some training about six years ago, it opened my eyes with respect to what I could, what I thought I could do, and, and ultimately what I learned I could do. You know, pushing that envelope because you just you just don't know sometimes. And, and some physicians don't necessarily want to take on on that that treatment algorithm or take on those patients but right. therein lies the rub you you need to find a physician that will take on those patients and, and again what you guys do with the weight of my heart um helping raise awareness is, is paramount and i think what it, what's important for everyone to understand is that you can't choose a doctor just based on title and pedigree you have to really understand that different doctors have different tools different techniques different philosophies and a lot of that has to do with their continuing education and how they evolve as a doctor are they you know staying stagnant or are they actually continuing to learn and and grow as medicine constantly evolves right. uh, one of the doctors that put together the conference, Dr. Mariano Polenia. I had a chance to sit down with him before the conference, and I was talking to him about why is it that so many doctors don't attend this conference? Because folks in Italy, these doctors are some of the, the most amazing pioneers in the advanced treatment of blocked arteries in the legs. And he said, well, some doctors just don't know what they don't know, but other doctors are totally resistant to treating these patients and the blockages below the knee. So I asked him, well, why are some of these doctors continuing to use old data from like 2013 to justify not treating these patients and their blockages below the knee? Um, and he was and he was saying it's because, you know, well, they say it's increases the chance of amputation, but he said they're just not doing it right. He said they have to go to conferences such as this one to see for themselves 
that treating below the knee can and should be done. And he, he says they're just missing the whole point of the whole thing. So why don't we um, have Aikman, our producer, throw to the clip of Dr. Mariano Palenia. This resistance is related to what we have been discussing today, that is the low or poor patency rate of what we do. Uh, but uh, who do not believe in that miss a piece of the cycle, miss a piece of the concept. We never look for an infinite patency rate. We look for improvement in the perfusion, relieve the symptoms, and have the patient the chance to create collaterals or to benefit from some other pharmacological therapy to uh, gain a balance again. So what we do is to open the vessels, not pretending to have a five years patency rate, but just pretending to increase the flow to heal the user and be back to the balance. I've never heard anyone say it better than that. What do you think, Dr. Phillips? I love it. And I think we can discuss it further after this short break. Hey, everyone. My name is Dr. David Alper, and I'm here with the latest segment of Footnotes from theweightofmyheart.org. And today we're going to talk about a simple thing with feet, corns and calluses. Why are we talking about corns and calluses? Certainly not something you want to bring up at the dinner table. Well, the reason is, is that corns and calluses in and of themselves are not something to really be concerned about. They certainly should be addressed because they could be painful. However, if you have circulation issues, if you have PAD or diabetes or neuropathy, a simple corner callus can turn into a deep infection or even an ulceration underneath. And this is why professionals need to treat these for you. So corns simply form on the toes and calluses form on the bottoms of the feet. It's the only difference between them. And they are both simply just thickening of the skin from excessive pressure and friction. Where does this come from? From inside your shoes, especially shoes that don't fit properly. And of course, when you're active. The way to treat it at home and alleviate some of the discomfort is to take away this pressure and friction. And you do that with felt. And these are things that are available at any drugstore. In the case of a corn, you simply get these wonderfully cut little pads that have a hole in the center. And you put the little corn right in the hole so you're padding around it. So now when it rubs, it'll rub the felt and not the corn or the bump in your toe, which will alleviate the pain. In the cases of the bottoms of your feet, again, you want to use something to remove the pressure. So you can use something thin that keeps it from rubbing, or you can take something thicker and cut a nice little donut. And in that way, once again, just like the corn pad, you're going to be taking the pressure and friction off of it. Less pressure, less friction, and you're not going to have any discomfort. Having said all that, these are things that should be looked at initially by a professional like a podiatrist. A podiatrist will take a sharp instrument like a scalpel, shave off the hard surface, and make sure that there's nothing hiding underneath to be concerned about. This is not something you should be doing. Even if you don't have vascular compromise, taking something like a knife or a scalpel to your skin is just not a safe thing to do. And please, nothing chemical to remove corns and calluses. It says right on the package, if you have diabetes, do not use anything with salicylic acid. Well, if it's not good for people with diabetes, why would it be good for you without diabetes? The best way to remove these things is with a doctor, and the best way to alleviate pain and discomfort is with padding. 
For further information, I point you to the American Podiatric Medical Association at APMA.org, the American Diabetes Association at Diabetes.org, and of course, the Weight of My Heart at TheWeightOfMyHeart.org. This is Dr. David Alper. Look forward to seeing you again in our next segment of Footnote. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to TheHeartOfInnovation.org. That's TheHeartOfInnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. And welcome back to the show. I am alive in Italy. Dr. Phillips is back in Ohio. I feel so sorry for you. I'm sitting here eating pasta and attending great conferences that talk about the advanced treatment in peripheral artery disease, which is blocked arteries mainly in the legs that if left untreated or treated poorly could lead to amputation. Three in five people who suffer a heart attack have peripheral artery disease and many don't know it till it's too late. But there are so many advances happening that it's great to get diagnosed early, get that treatment early so that you can keep standing on your own two feet for the rest of your life and hopefully a longer, healthier life. Before the break, Dr. Phillips, we um, had a quick clip from Dr. Mariano Polenia, one of the founders of the CLIC conference, CLI, Critical Limb Ischemia Conference. And he was talking about how so many doctors don't treat below the knee so they don't go to a conference like this because it would almost completely go against their philosophy and you wanted to explain a little bit more about what he was saying and um why he was saying it yeah so i I think um mariano brings up a good point there are patients that have peripheral arterial disease that have you know, discomfort when they walk. And then there's this more complex subset that actually have tissue loss and pain in their legs at rest. And, and those in that with that more complex subset need to seek out physicians that, that actually treat the disease, meaning they help improve the blood flow, but then also have a, a wound care team that helps with, with their wounds. And I think it's okay if you do, if you, if you're uh, an interventionalist or a surgeon and you do uh, peripheral arterial disease work, but if and if you choose not to do CLI work, you kind of owe it, I think, to your patients uh, to send them to someone who who does do right. that CLI work. And I think um, that that moves us to a next um, seg- a next portion of the of the show. With uh, we've got a nice interview with with Dr. Marco Monzi. Um, he kind of highlights some of these thoughts as well. He's one of the the co founders of the Click Conference as well. So can we can we uh, cue that interview with Dr. Monzi, please? What we have to learn still is how to standardize the procedure, how to try to standardize the, the way we have to approach the disease, to approach the lesions, to approach the, the anatomical conditions. So um, it's different for peripheral interventions compared to coronaric intervention. In coronaric intervention, everything has been studied, well-studied, well-proved, well-standardized. We have a lot of discussion how to treat, if we have to treat, if we don't have to treat, if we, if we have to treat, how to treat. Um, so we are in the beginning of a new history. That's the truth. We, we are trying to create the terrain, we have to create the culture, we have to create uh, 
a new awareness uh, with new technologies, with new culture, new minds, probably we are able to reduce the impact of this food. So are you encouraged by the next generation? Because as it stands right now, we talk about standardization. But from my perspective, working with 11,000 patients around the world with so many different doctors, there are so many different camps. You have still the doctors that refuse to, they're using 2013 data that says treating below the knee is ineffective. They would rather amputate. Yeah. Unfortunately, in Italy, but I, I'm sure in many other countries in the world, amputation is better reimbursed than revascularization. So uh, in some realities, uh, in some social realities, it becomes much more convenient to perform a direct amputation with a very well money reimbursement but we have to redefine the value of our procedures, so the value of an amputation, the value of uh, a revascularization. That's the problem. And that's why in some, some countries, still, amputation is the first choice. But it's interesting. I have heard several doctors that have told me that they would choose amputation over revascularization because when it comes to endovascular, let's delay, 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 because once you start, it becomes a revolving door of treatments. From our perspective and working with patients around the world, those who have been amputated, every single one of our patients, we have dozens that have been amputated. There is never one amputation. There is always a revolving door of amputations as well. So how can anyone today rest upon the fact that we're not going to revascularize because that's a revolving door of treatment when it, the same goes for amputation. If we consider a revascularization as a part of a treatment, so as a part of a multidisciplinary approach to the patient, the difference is really huge. The outcome on the patient is really completely different. But that's history. That's published. Uh, that's not the secret. So the problem is to create the proper environment, the proper culture for doing this. Otherwise, uh, if you revascularize a patient, then you send the patient home without any um, any check on, on, on the clinical situation, uh, could be an event that will worsen the, the situation, the clinical situation. It's not good to consider revascularization as a single treatment, one-shot treatment. No. So we are speaking together with, of course, control of the smoking or risk factors. But the problem is we don't have educa enough education among the patients. We don't have enough education among the physicians to, I, I mean, family physicians. Um, we still are seeing patients arriving in the hospital uh, with diabetes. They, they bought a new pair of shoes and they have a, a stupid lesion because the shoes is new and a friction in the heel or a friction and they develop a lesion, a, a bubble, and the family physician says, oh, it's okay, you can put a cream. After 
weeks of cream, 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 the lesion, the stupid bubble becomes a, a ulceration like this, not healing. Infections, after two days, the infection arrives at the knee and you have to amputate the patient. So we educate the patients to, to have a, a periodically check, vascular check. We can realize when the lesion is very stupid, is very, and we can maintain or try to maintain, avoiding to uh, arrive uh, to disaster, to, 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 to dramatic situation. How do we get everybody on the same page when they only go to their own conferences that they always go to with their own within their own societies and they never break out beyond to find out new ideas? Yes, uh, this is very difficult because uh, I think that uh, so far um, it's very poor because we are human and we have the human being defects. We are too proud. So I think we have to change our minds, knowing that we can do something more. We are not at the end. We are in the beginning. Thank you so much, Dr. Monzi. We really appreciate it. Next year, we need to get Dr. Phillips here, right? Okay. For sure. For sure. Um, but basically, Marco Monzi was talking just more about the importance of going to one of these conferences and, and what they learn. And, um, you know, at, at this conference in particular, what was really interesting to me is they had doctors actually on all sides that were, you know, some treated below the knee and some didn't. And they were opening to all different perspectives. Yeah, exactly. I think getting back to furthering physician education. It's, it behooves a physician, regardless of what you practice, to continue to educate yourself. And, I, you know, we talk about postgraduate years. When you graduate from medical school and you become an intern, you're a PGY1, postgraduate year one. And then I always say it doesn't end when you're done with your residency or fellowship. We're all postgraduates, something or other. So, you know, you can be a postgraduate year 35, meaning you've been in practice for 30 years, but you still need to read and, and, and go to some conferences, learn about um, you know, whatever it is that you are, are treating that patient for. And, and then also you can branch out too. I mean, for example, when I was doing peripheral arterial disease work, again, I wasn't going below the knee about six or seven years ago. And then I went to Italy and saw what Marco does and I started going below the knee and, and that has changed my practice. There are a lot of avenues for physicians to navigate through to raise their um, educational you know, acumen. They just they just need to seek that out, and the patients too can be an advocate uh, for themselves. And again, like I said before, if you don't, if you if you're a patient with critical limb or PAD, and your physician may or may not be you know treating um, or, or doing the procedures that you think you might need, just get a second opinion. We've talked about that before on the show. Second opinion, third opinion, they're always helpful. Yeah, I mean, you you honestly you can't anymore just go by reviews on Google or any of the other sites out there. Um, and you can't just go by title. You can't just 
get stuck in the referral lottery and just say, oh, well, you know, my primary my primary care physician plays golf with this guy. So obviously he's really, really good. Or I go to a big name hospital. So every single doctor in that hospital has to be on the cutting edge. It's not necessarily true. Um, we have D actually on the phone. And D, you have a question for us. Kim, thank you, Dr. Phillips. I'm very interested in learning more about the PAD curricula in in med schools and um, how do we go about updating and increasing the quality and quantity of of that curricula? Do we put pressure on the AMA and who's who's responsible for this kind of thing? Yeah, that's a great question and a little outside of my wheelhouse, uh, but I would say that in medical school, I, I graduated in 04, so it's been a while. We didn't spend a lot of time discussing vascular disease. Um, I can tell you, though, that when you when we educate residents and specifically fellows, whether they're in vascular surgery, interventional radiology, or interventional cardiology, um, they're Oftentimes, they go to programs that have an extra year or two of what we call endovascular training, so uh-huh. using using balloons and stents and atherectomy and things like that. To right. Treat well, I went to a, someone who graduated Harvard Med and had been in practice for over 30 years, and things did not work out very well. And that led me to think... She's not seeking out these conferences you're talking about to update herself. Um, yeah, and my, that's, that's a possibility. But again, there are the, there are um, you know folks that are graduating now that that are trained in it, and I think um, again, it's yeah. just trying to find the right. But is it for required you. for a VS to update? In conferences or coursework? They're required to go to a continuing educational courses. They call mm-hmm. them CME credits, um, but they don't tell them exactly what they need to learn. And I've been to these conferences, and so many of them are mm-hmm. just, they don't even show up for the seminars. There are a lot of conferences where they just go and they hang out with their buddies or they're sitting in the back chit-chatting or, you know, whatever. And they're going to certain seminars that they've already – it's what they already know. And so it just depends on the doctor, and that's why coming up later on in the show, we're going to tell you the questions to ask to learn whether or not your doctor is going to the right seminars. So stay with us. That's fabulous. Thank you. Medical Notepad, brought to you by patient advocacy organizations Take a Stand Against Amputation and The Way to My Heart. Here is Dr. Kirk Minkus, vascular and interventional radiologist at Southwest Cardiovascular Associates in Phoenix, Arizona. What are varicose veins? Hi, my name is Dr. Kirk Minkus, and I'm an interventional radiologist and vascular specialist that works in Phoenix, Arizona. I want to talk to you today about something called varicose veins, which you may have heard of. The venous system works a little bit different than the arterial system, whereby it brings blood from the feet and toes back up the legs and back to the heart. If you have venous insufficiency or varicose veins, you could have symptoms such as bloating in the legs, late afternoon pain and aching, swelling of your legs that occurs later in the afternoon, a sense of tightness or fullness or heaviness in your legs, legs that feel very warm, or an overall ache in your legs that you feel and deal with every day. 
A lot of my patients that have varicose veins have to go home at the end of the workday, put their legs up on a couch, take some Tylenol or Advil, and do these things to get the pressure off of their legs by elevating them. So if you have any of these venous-type symptoms, you need to get in touch with a vascular specialist like myself so we can discuss with you the treatments we have to be able to fix varicose vein issues and this tight, bloated, swollen, painful, achy, warm feeling in your legs that you experience every day. Thank you for your attention. With Medical Notepad, that was Dr. Kirk Minkus, vascular and interventional radiologist at Southwest Cardiovascular Associates in Phoenix, Arizona. The Medical Notepad series is for educational and informational purposes only. Advice offered is not a substitute for medical advice from your own supervising physician. Do not act on any information provided in this series without the explicit consent from your own health care team. For more information, go to standagainstamputation.com and for support. Support, go to thewaytomyheart.org. Now that I've got your attention, let me tell you all about us. Whoa, tough crowd. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Everyone, and welcome back to the show. We are talking about continuing medical education for for doctors and the importance of having that conversation with your doctor. Dr. Phillips has said that he's never had anyone come to him and, and ask those types of questions about, well, do you go to school continuing now? I mean, what are you continuing to learn? But especially when it comes to treating vascular diseases such as heart disease or vascular um, peripheral artery disease. There's so much happening. Innovation is moving at the speed of light and there's so much to learn. You can't just continue to continue to practice based on what you learned 10 years or even 20 years ago. There's always something new and something next, and especially the tools being used, um, balloons for balloon angioplasty or what's called atherectomy. They're devices that physically go in and remove the plaque inside your arteries. So many new devices just coming out every single day to try and make it easier for for people to get that blood flowing back again. Right, doctor? Yeah, well, Kim, I mean, you bring up an interesting point. I've never had a patient ask me, how many procedures have you done? How many, you know, what's your success rate? But I have been at conferences where the the individual on the podium will put up a slide that says, okay, we're talking about X procedure. I've done X, you know, I've done 200 of these. This is is why I am, uh, why I was asked to speak on this, you know, be on this panel. I think that would be a curious question for a patient to ask. And that, in my mind, would just kind of raise my attention a little bit, just thinking, wow, this, this patient really knows what they want, and, and they're at least seeking out a physician that can help them. Yeah, I talked to Dr. Mariana Polina once again, and I know we do have this sound clip, so if Aikman wouldn't mind making sure that this clip comes up. Um, he talks about the most important questions that patients should be asking their doctor and the most advanced doctors will appreciate them. Those who are not the advanced specialists who are not continuing their education might get their feathers ruffled a little bit, I would say. Make sure, like Kim had said, you may get the referral lottery, but you can do 
your research on that physician yes. online. Yes, um, it, exactly. They become extremely defensive. If they're defensive, you need a new doctor. That's right. That's Kevin Morgan. He's going to be coming up in our, he's one of our Save My Piggies features for the day. Um, and that's exactly true. They might get defensive, but I think that that is a red flag for you. Don't you think, Dr. Phillips? It is. We're not used to, you know, being asked those types of questions. They're not bad questions. I think you just have to be open to it. And there's nothing wrong with a physician who does do some endovascular work but doesn't do CLI work. Then, again, they can just, they're probably someone in their practice, probably somebody they, they know outside their practice that they can refer the patient to. It's just checking your ego at the door and ultimately doing what's right for that patient. Okay, do we have the, Mari- do we have the Mariano Polenia clip? We like to educate patients on what to ask their doctors, especially when they're trying to determine which doctor to go to. What questions should a patient ask their doctor to ensure that the doctor is on the cutting edge of treating a disease like peripheral artery disease? Patients could ask doctors how many patients they are treating during a year. Uh, I, I, I can imagine that those questions are not uh, very friendly, but a doctor that do not perform more than four, five hundred procedures in a year is not one dedicated for CLI. So a big volume means skills, means technique, uh, means uh, training. And you're not just talking about how many general procedures in treating peripheral artery disease. We're talking the most advanced form of peripheral artery disease, which is critical limb ischemia. Yeah, sure. The patients could, again, ask how many procedures on CLI patients. Successful procedures. Yeah, it's the second. It's the second, and there are many others. How many do you do? Uh, How many of those you reach a success? Uh, How is your amputation rate? That's our indicators of the quality of a center dedicated for diabetic food and for CLI. When it comes to continuing educational conferences such as CLIC, is there a question that they could ask a, a, doc, a doctor that would lead them to know if the doctor is actually going to a cutting edge seminar or the same old, same old society seminar they always go to where they just learn the same old, same old? Well, mm, this is a very complex question because, you know, uh, you can be a very good doctor, very skilled guy, and not be invited. But I think the the most recognized physicians around the world are usually faculty for the most important uh, meetings. Uh, the papers you already published about technique, therapy, result. These are another important uh, situations that allow you to understand what type of physician you have in front of you. Yeah, they could actually look up industry conferences and say, hey, what are the top industry conferences for treating PAD and look to see who's on the faculty? You know, uh, most of us have the CV online. So probably patients do not need to ask directly, but can visit the website of the physicians and check on the CV the conferences the physicians are attending or were invited to faculty as well, the papers, uh, every one of us published. Uh, If someone looks to my CV, I publish only on CLI. Typically, you know, because I've been on the other end of this, taking my, my parents to doctors, um, 
Number one, when you see a physician for the first time, you should go with another individual, whether it's your your um, you know brother, sister, husband, wife, whatever. They, that patient should always have someone with them at that visit to to take down notes. And then I also encourage patients to have a list of questions ahead of time about what their diagnosis is, what are their treatment options, you know, th- things of that nature. Yeah. And so, and also what you were mentioning earlier. So I, I would also ask, what is your success rate for the most complex cases? What are those complex cases? What do they look like? Is there a successful case that is much like mine that you have had? Please describe that case to me and what you did. Also, how do you mitigate the risks what are those risks and how do you mitigate those risks during a procedure? I think that those are really important. And yeah, I mean, to- no, I was just going to say it's amazing. Sometimes patients will get referred into me and I meet them for the first time in our pre-procedural area. Uh, and I do the best I can to kind of draw their arteries out and, and here's the blockage. This is kind of what we're planning on doing. A lot of them have frankly no clue what the process is is and why they're you know they know yeah. that they've got an ulcer and they know they have a blockage issue but the, the 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 granular nature of it they don't they don't know that and yeah no and when it comes to to conferences in particular um what dr mariana polonia was going to say was was pretty much that it's it's important to go and look up the industry conferences and to see if your particular physician might be on faculty for some of the most advanced discussions that are happening. Are they presenting a publication to educate their peers on advanced tools and treatments? Yeah, so- exactly. No, I was just going to say, we do a lot of uh, clinical trials at our hospital and the patients have to sign a consent form, not only to have the procedure, but also sign a consent form to be enrolled in a clinical study. And I think that most of the patients say, "That's this is great. I mean, like to be on the cutting edge and in, in, in doing clinical research, you know, we want to be a part of that. Uh, some people think, you know, they're being guinea pigs, but I always tell them if we didn't have clinical trials, we would never have advanced medicine to where we are today. And coming up in just a moment, we have to toss to break. We have an amazing feature. We mentioned Kevin Morgan is here. He is the fit old dog, and he's going to have his story of perseverance with an aneurysm coming up next. Leg health can indicate risk for heart attack, stroke, and amputation. If you have leg pain or cramps while walking, get checked for peripheral artery disease, or PAD. PAD is plaque buildup in mainly the leg arteries. Be sure to ask your physician for an ankle brachial index, also called an ABI test, where they use blood pressure cuffs to analyze the blood pressure in your legs. If they discover you have arterial plaque that's limiting blood flow to your feet, medicine and a regimented walking program are frontline treatment. If PAD is in its advanced stages, your physician may schedule a surgical intervention. Minimally invasive tools are available to remove plaque and restore blood flow, including cardiovascular system's Diamondback 360 atherectomy system, which sands away plaque that is a hard calcium. It's important to discuss all options with your physician, and if told you have no options, get a second opinion. Take a stand against amputation. For more information, go to standagainstamputation.com. That's standagainstamputation.com. Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. 
For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Right now, we're going to have our Save My Piggies segment. Uh, the Save My Piggies podcast and, and the segment is really devoted to patient education, patient advocacy. We try to have a patient on um, you know, every, every uh, week who can tell us a, 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 a story about how they persevered with respect to their peripheral arterial disease. And, and we're really thankful to have Kevin Morgan on. Kevin had a, an aneurysm. Uh, that was, um, you know, he found on his own and, and he got treated and now he's what doing triathlons and, and he's a, a fit old dog. So Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Share, share your story about your aneurysm and how you diagnosed it. Okay. Very briefly. Uh, uh, okay. I'm, I'm 79 years old in about two or three days. Uh, in my 30s, I discovered, as a result of platelet function studies in my lab in Switzerland, that I have a genetic hyperlipidemia, hypertrichin, around 2000. My uh, HDL was less than 20. Wow. And uh, I realized that I was headed for trouble. Uh, my plasma looked like clotted cream. And this was uh, a fasting sample. Anyway, I worked on that with uh, exercise to some degree, but mainly on diet. I, I managed to get triglycerides down to the five, six, seven hundred. That's the best I could do. And I knew I was going to be heading for vascular disease. I need to say that I do have, I'm alive because of two things. My passion for sports, which I think is what's kept me alive, and my education. I'm a, I don't want to go on about my education, but I'm a veterinarian. I have a PhD in neuropathology. I'm a fellow of the Royal College of Pathologists in England. I have my American Veterinary Pathology Boards, and I've published a lot of papers and given a lot of continuing education, as a result of which I diagnosed my aneurysm in 2010 as a result of weird symptoms in an Ironman race. Otherwise, I would have been dead within months. What I mean, were those symptoms? Because my mom just recently unexpectedly passed. Not one of the doctors picked up on her symptoms. They claim that aneurysms have no symptoms. There's no telling that they're even going to come. But your symptoms were like my mom's symptoms. But you diagnosed it yourself. Well, what happened was I, I was well trained for the 2010 Ironman race in Lake Placid. I came off the bike uh, 40 minutes ahead of my only competitor. I've been coached by a really good coach. I was ready to run having a 112-mile bike ride. I was all set to run a 415 marathon. And at 10 miles into the run, I had a burning on the bottom of my feet. My subsequent differential diagnostic list caused me to realize a few weeks later that I had a triple A. Uh, I went to the doctor and asked for a scan. She listened to my stomach and said everything was fine. I said, I want a scan. She wrote a, a, a script. She showed no interest in following up what happened ever. I never saw her again. Uh, I went over to an ultrasound lab across the road told them the problem they because i was a pathologist they allowed me to talk about the diagnosis i had a 6.9 triple a oh my my aortic my my aortic wall was paper thin and it was like if i wasn't a pathologist i would have been long dead so so just just kevin i'm going to interrupt you real quick just for our listeners the normal diameter of an aorta is less than three centimeters so yours was almost seven centimeters when we have an aneurysm that's 
typically above five and a half centimeters, that is the indication to to repair it, whether it's surgically or with stents. And so Go you ahead, ended Kevin. up having a stent. I had a stent, but I was never asked if I wanted a stent or open. At that time, because of the risks of cutting a pudendal nerve with open and the problems of open surgery, I probably wouldn't go on for a stent anyway. That stent failed twice. Uh, Once the left arm of the common iliac branch uh, dislocated as a result of a bike wreck in Las Vegas, where I was competing in the World's Half Ironman Championships, that sent me to (laughs) Cleveland Clinic. They fixed it, and how they fixed it was pretty amazing, but I won't go into that. But I had to agree to be part of a clinical trial. Kevin, I'm I'm going to say this. Um, I treated two aneurysms this week, actually. And I've never had a patient who um, was going to be at risk for moving the limb of the stent because they were in a, a, a bicycle wreck or, or competing in a triathlon. So well, well, kudos the, to you, man. Com- it was more complex than that. The, right. my, my left common iliac arm is very short. It's only 1.5 centimeters, and it was starting to dilate. So that, that left arm was already flapping around. So they, they stabilized it by going up in through the femoral artery, inserting an, a fenestrated extension. They then inserted an extension into the hypogastric via my brachial artery and down through my aorta. And so that stabilized for about three or four years, and then it failed. My left common iliac clotted completely, and I'm running on collaterals. Oh, by the way, right now, there is no detectable pulse in my right foot with ultrasound. I'm running entirely on collaterals that I've been building through training. And it, the, the PAD, when I had the uh, blockage of my left common iliac, they ran an ABI test. And that's when Mark, who is really good, uh, informed me that I'm having, uh, you know, P, PAD symptoms. And then so now the aorta problem is not really a problem. I made modifications to my training and now I'm fighting PAD and I fight PAD with exercise Walking helps, but you need much more than walking. I'm still doing Ironman training, but the PAD is making running extremely difficult. It does not affect swimming and biking at all. Um, And what I discovered in the last half Ironman I did about five weeks ago, it takes about five miles of running and walking to fully open those collaterals. Not only have you got to build them, you have to open them. They're always wanting to close because... uh, Right, they lay dormant otherwise. Right, they only yeah, actually they, go into right. use when there's extra demand. So, right. so Kevin, uh, Kevin, aside from your... My message basically is you have to be your own doctor. You have to cross-examine your physicians and surgeons and understand it. So your education is really important. But my training helps me, but I think everyone should try to be their own physician and understand it, as you, you guys are doing. You're doing a great job of that. Exercise and diet are important. I suspect that our the exercise is actually even more important than diet. Um, and so education and exercise and diet will keep you going for a long time. And be kind to people, including yourself. And you yourself. do a lot of that, actually. <laughs> Tell us about your website and what you're doing. You were literally so um, inspired you know, by, to actually you know, do so much more with exercise, do so much more with your diet, that you're helping to educate others as well through your website and a couple books. Yeah, I've written quite a few books. Um, let's not talk about plantar fasciitis. The medical press, profession has that <laughs> entirely wrong. We'll talk about that another time, maybe. <laughs> but uh, wh- when I talked about my genetic dyslipidemia, my 
My, my triglycerides were literally over 2,000, and my HDL was less than 20, which is really bad because it plays an important role in reverse cholesterol transport. When I started doing Ironman, I, I, within a year, my, my blood lipid profile went to normal with Ironman training. But Ironman training is a lot of training. Kevin, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna summarize what I think you the salient points, and you you hit on them. Ex- exercise, exercise, exercise. Be your own quarterback for your health. You know, as a as a physician, I'm your coach, but you got to be the quarterback. And your story is fantastic. Uh, thanks for joining us. And you We've have to go actually to- go to fiddledog.com. Is that what oh, it is? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Fiddledog.com. You Athlete with Stent is the best place. Athlete with Stent. That is the best go. place to, to find you. Thanks so much, Kevin. Oh, one last word. Thanks so much for all you guys are doing. It's great. Oh, I Thank you. It. Thanks for being our Save My Piggies guest. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. We have just a few minutes here, but we do have a caller that is calling in. We have Heidi. Heidi, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Cardinal, Ontario. Wow, we have a very far reach today. Heidi, what's your international audience? I love it. (laughs) Um, My question is, I was at the vascular surgeon with my mom yesterday. And so I had questions. She needs a stent. And he had no idea what I was talking about when I asked about slow balloon. And he also said that because she has calf pain only during the night. Um, He said that that was not circulation related and her claudication because it wasn't consistent at, let's say, like every 50 yards or or whatever, that because sometimes it's 10, sometimes it's 100 feet, um, that that wouldn't be related to peripheral artery disease. But her scans and everything is definitely PAD. Right. And this is what's interesting to me. And we've been talking this entire show about continuing medical education and learning what's new and next. And that is an antiquated way of thinking. And I'm surprised that from a vascular surgeon's perspective that they would not associate the two. Dr. Phillips? Well, a couple of points. You know, honestly, I need to be educated. I don't know what a, the slow balloon is either. Oh, it's be... low, low and slow. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Exactly. Yeah, you yeah. know exactly yes, what yes. it is. Yes, so yes, it's yes. Basically, so, I mean, it's... no, yeah, to, to your point, I mean, again, folks or, or interventionalist surgeons, there's a lot of ways to, to, to what we call skin the cat with respect to treating PAD. Um, I think for the most part, you need to, when you ask these questions, <clears throat> You just have to allow yourself to um, let the physician think a little bit about what the treatment options are. I think you need to ask what they're planning on doing, whether it's surgical or if it's with a balloon or a stent, what, you know, why they want to use a stent, why they want to do surgery, et cetera. Now, the second part of your question with respect to your mom's pain, a lot of times it is atypical for patients. Sometimes they'll, so for example, walking on a flat surface, patients often don't get claudication, but when they have to go in, uh, on an incline, then then the symptoms will 
come more more quickly and be more debilitating. So everybody, not everybody reads our textbooks as to how they're supposed to present with these symptoms. We do have testing that we can do to elicit it with exercise. So I usually encourage my patients to have that test. And and is that the test that's the almost like you have a stress test and you're on a treadmill and you put on the ABI, the ankle brachial index, do you put on those blood pressure cuffs on those legs at the same time? Exactly. Yeah, we, we get resting um, pressures and then we exercise you a little bit on a treadmill and, and we see if the pressures change. If they change significantly or drop uh, specifically, then usually that means that there's a, a blockage somewhere that could be causing some of their symptoms. But sometimes patients can have symptoms from their nerves or the musculoskeletal, their joints, etc. Yeah, and that's true. But what's concerning to me is the, the calf pain at night. And Heidi, does she have to dangle her legs off the side of the bed? And does it improve when she does that? If she gets she up and walk? She she gets up. Um, she gets up and and she is um, being scheduled for stents in her, her iliac arteries. Um, she's going to have two stents put in. Um, I saw the scans myself. He had them up. And and you could see where 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 the plaque was. Um, he explained all that. Um, but <laughs> I, I was just a little nervous with with his, um, you know, saying that her claudication that he didn't think it was that. I mean, you know, flat service or not, she it hits real quick and that's it. She has to stop. And she also said that her pain, it goes away when she stops. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty classic definition yeah. from what you're telling me. And I would just, I mean, in terms of, of what we were saying in terms of the treatment, iliacs are, are pretty standard. I, I think most vascular surgeons, interventional cardiologists and interventional radiologists um, are, are pretty well trained in, in doing iliacs. Um, and they're a little bit more sturdy, right? They're a little bit more hardy. They're able to take a little bit more, Dr. Phillips. Yeah, I mean, the, the durability of... Um, the stents or surgery in the iliacs is phenomenal. And, and you really change a patient's life when you fix a blocked iliac artery because that, that claudication is debilitating. I have several patients who, one patient just wanted to dance at, at his daughter's wedding and we fixed his iliacs. He was able to do that. So that is a very rewarding procedure for us. And I, and I love doing them. We have Darla that just um, chimed in on um, our messenger here. She she is kind of chiming in with with Heidi here. The trust issues do occur when professionals miss the obvious signs, whether it's PAD or or with the heart. It, it really makes you really hesitant as a patient to want them to um, go further and, and treat you when those trust issues are there. So. Yeah, no, we definitely agree with you. And you're not, in a sense, beating the dead horse, as, as you're saying. It, it's a really valid concern. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, Heidi. Thank you, Darla. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Dee, um, for all chiming in today and helping with this conversation. Our purpose is to reduce the 1.5 million heart attacks and strokes and nearly 200,000 amputations annually. For more information regarding topics you've heard discussed on today's program, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. The Heart of Innovation is for educational and informational purposes only, and advice and views shared are not a substitute for medical advice from your own supervising physician. Do not act on any information provided in this show without the explicit consent from your own healthcare team. If you think you are having a medical emergency, call your local emergency number or go to the nearest hospital or emergency room. This show is distributed by the Innovators Network. 
For more information and other great shows and content, visit theinnovators.network. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.